Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. This week, we're releasing two episodes about all things channel partnerships. Today's episode is with Florian Otto, co-founder and CEO of Cedar. He is joined by A16Z Bio and Health general partner, Julie Yu. On Thursday, you'll hear from Sean Duffy, co-founder and CEO of Omada Health. In today's episode, Florian and Julie talk about how Cedar began engaging with channel partners, what happens when things go wrong, and how the Cedar team is structured to implement and nurture these partnerships. This episode was recorded as part of our research into our forthcoming go-to-market playbook focused on channel partnerships. Stay tuned for that, which we'll be releasing in the coming days at a16z.com slash digital hyphen health hyphen builders. We'll also put that URL in the show notes. Let's get started. We are here with Florian Otto, the amazing CEO of Cedar, uh, which we've had the privilege of being involved with. Um, thanks so much for being here with us today, Florian. Thank you for having me on. The topic du jour is uh, channel partnerships. And um, I think Cedar is often looked to as one of the most impressive commercial engines in the provider-facing universe on a direct sales basis. But we also know that you have uh, forged a number of partnerships along the way as well that support your distribution efforts. So for those uninitiated who are not familiar with Cedar, can you just start with a quick overview of what is Cedar and maybe a bit of the, the founding story of how you came to start the business? So Cedar is an enterprise um, healthcare engagement platform. So sitting between the provider, the payer, and uh, the patient. And the mission is to enable us all to pursue and affordably the, the pursue the care we need. So for us, it's super important uh, to make this healthcare experience transparent, which is not right now currently. And founding story was my wife had a really bad billing experience based here in New York, fainted on the street, and then got uh, treated extremely well in the hospital, actually, on the medical side, and then the billing was completely messed up. So um, landed in collections and told me never, ever to take me back to that hospital. Eight years later, that's why we're sitting here right now <laughs> with, with the company, serving around 20 million patients every single year, processing billions of dollars in uh, healthcare payments and making the experience for the patients easier so that they can focus on getting healthy and not worrying about the um, administrative experience. Unfortunately, an experience that many of us have had, and I think it's remarkable to hear the 20 million number. And, you know, some of the crux of this conversation is really how do you get to those 20 million patients um, by virtue of, of how you go to market? So along those lines, what stage and size was Cedar when you decided to enter into your first channel distribution partnership? 
we of course always had this idealism idea maybe we can just do literally channel partnerships and don't do anything else no direct sales would be beautiful it would be lovely <laughs> <laughs> it would be much cheaper it would be much less headache of course for the entire team that's unfortunately not possible so we basically said a very clear strategy we are responsible for our sales period and that's it and if we want to have channel partnerships they of course should be an enhancement to our current direct sales model and we started i think having these conversations probably two years in uh, to the company but they didn't really materialize then so i think we were something like four years in until we really had the first relationship that was kind of on paper that's really interesting that you had actually started with a business focused on channel partnership. What, what was your framework? Why, why were you attracted to the notion of partnerships to begin with? On paper, of course, it, it, it's beautiful, right? Because you usually have a channel partner who has a sales force, who is very deep already um, networked with the clients, and you have a really good product, and that can just scale your product. Usually when you're in the software business, the margins or the gross margins, of course, are really, really good for that product. But the problem is, is, is in enterprises, the go-to-market takes very, very long to do that. It's extremely expensive. That's the reason why, of course, there, there is this ideal, can this work? But we are also very realistic that we don't believe it will ever be possible to do that literally from the beginning to the end. It might be helping for some parts of the organization. So which is, for example, on the early stage funnel, but it probably will not be possible in the middle or later stage of the sales. And you mentioned that the first one that you started to pursue took quite a while to manifest. What was what were some of the drivers of that? And, and to what degree was some of that just readiness on the part of Cedar versus, you know, other externalities that pertained to that partner that you were trying to work with? I would say 100% readiness for Cedar <laughs> was, was the issue. Mm -hmm. So what's the fundamental problem when you do um, a channel partnership? It's, of course, very, very attractive for the small company, right? Because the small company usually has a decent product and the larger company has kind of the scale uh, in order to sell it. And we, in the beginning, have neither brand recognition, nor do we have the scale, nor do we have a proven product. So nobody wants to partner with you when you are very small. And we, when we were a two-year-old company, that was literally the case. We had barely any, um, I think, case studies that that the, the partner could market with. We didn't have any experience on how to handle that as well. We didn't really have a really full out build own sales team. So I think a bunch of issues is when, when there's too big of a difference between the smaller partner and the larger partner. Given the nature of Cedar's business and product, you can imagine a whole swath of types of organizations that could make for a potentially viable partner, whether it be on the technology vendor side, whether it be on the BPO consulting side, whether it be even on other revenue cycle partners, but potentially, um, how did you slice the market? And you know, how did you ultimately decide what the characteristics of the best partner would be? We, we actually segmented a little bit on what are partners for this early stage of the sales process. Let's call it just lead acquisition marketing partnerships. What are maybe channel partners that can help us in the middle cycle of the sales? So, for example, really that, that are companies that are close with the customers that sell already something that could sell Cedar then as well. And then what are the ones in the very late, late stage cycle? So, like, for example, there are some partners that we have 
where it's literally much easier to contract then with the given healthcare system, which is much more in the late stage, but they won't help us much with lead generation. So those were the three segments that we looked into. And we started, of course, more um, in the beginning with these marketing partnerships, which actually are extremely good because I think they help a lot because in the beginning you need to figure out what is your sales story, what are you selling to customers. And when your product is pretty complex, like Cedar is an extremely complex sale, I think there's no chance to just literally hand over the keys to a partner and say, you are going to do the sale for us. It never happens. And I also don't think actually it should happen, especially not in the beginning, because you need to, as a company, you need to build up the relationship with the customer. Also for afterwards for upsell opportunities, right? If you go through a channel partner, you don't have the direct relationship with the customer. You don't learn from them. You don't get their feedback. You don't know what to build and you don't know how to upsell them. So that's why we really started with this very early stage, these marketing partnerships. Then we went a little bit to the mid-cycle and then um, our latest partnerships also include some of these contracting frameworks. That is um, super similar actually to how we did this at my company, Kairos, where you had different levels of partner. Can you share a little bit? Obviously, we respect like the proprietary nature of these deal constructs and, and the specific terms, but I have to imagine that you probably have different incentive structures for each of those categories of partners. So can you give us some general insight into what the levers on these deals might look like? I think oftentimes people think about rev share as sort of the canonical form of what these contracts look like. But is that the case or are there other forms of revenue stream that you've implemented through these different categories of partners? Yeah, of course, RevShare is the easiest uh, and usually has, I think, both parties the most aligned. And that's, I think, an element that, that encompasses most of them. Sometimes, of course, there are some fixed fees that you pay for a certain lead or a certain introduction. Um, it's usually something that I'm not a big fan of just because the quality, it gets very messy, right? Because the quality of these introductions is very different. And as I think most of our listeners know, in an enterprise sale, just getting the introduction is usually not the biggest value. One of the biggest value is just this being a coach to get through the organization and do the sales. Because it's a multi-stakeholder sale, right? It's not just literally the one stakeholder who says, yes, implement it. But it's much more like you have five or ten stakeholders you need to, you need to convince. So I think when you go, for example, a bit earlier in the cycle, then the ref share deals also get a little bit messy because it takes long to really get the closing. So average size, the sales cycle for us is probably six to nine months, sometimes 12 months. It's a very, very long time. So when you have right now early stage lead generation um, partnerships, then literally it gets also very messy because which lead came from that uh, partner? It's not very clear and you cannot really assign them. It's, of course, you can somehow say these are the accounts, but then you address them with other channels as well. So when it gets to the early stage, I also think it makes sense to have an other, uh, other forms of compensation, which might literally just be a fee for certain events that we are doing. So more on the marketing side, literally. So you're doing some sort of yeah, joint events, for example, with another entity. You're doing happy hours together, co-sponsor them, which are part channel partnerships and part literally just marketing um, arrangements. And do you have or have you contemplated pure sort of OEM type relationships? I mean, you insinuated earlier that obviously it is critical to have an, a relationship with the end customer. But in cases where there might be, you know, a technical partner like an EHR company or 
a solution that's very synergistic with Cedar sort of slotting into an existing workflow or whatnot, it seems that there could be an opportunity to have more of these sort of turnkey, you know, OEM type operations. Is that something that you are favorable towards? Uh, or, you know, how do you think about those B2B, some of the more commercially, purely commercially oriented partnerships that you've just described? Um, yeah, 100%. Um, we'll be super open to that. In, in that case, the interesting piece is we actually then treat that more like just a normal sales process to that channel partner. Because in the end, we are just basically selling our product to this, I don't know, it's called EHR. And they would be using Cedar for all of their clients. So the question is, is it literally just the one stakeholder or the one company we're doing the deal with with the EHR? Or is it that the EHR afterwards needs to resell that to their clients as well? It's a very big difference. And um, we, of course, are open to both of that. And both, I think, are interesting approaches. Great. You mentioned sort of the timing was a key important thing, or the readiness, I should say, on, on Cedar's part. Um, and I think a lot of what we hear um, founders talk about is that it's best to do these partnerships once you have product market fit. Uh, and I use air quotes because obviously the very definition of product market fit can be very subjective. Um, and, you know, it's unclear sort of exactly how you define that. But if you did have to put a pin on what has to be true about the company, the product, the team to be ready to invest in these kinds of partnerships, what would you describe was the case for Cedar? when you first entered into these, into these channel partnerships? In the beginning, of course, you're selling a solution, you're selling a vision, you're selling a hype, you don't really know what to build. And there needs to be a lot of interaction between client and Cedar, back and forth, back and forth, because you're iterating with them. And then at some point, it becomes more standardized. And that is the sales process. And that is also, of course, the product. And that is the moment when you can do channel partners. Because you know exactly what you build, then it's more like, yeah, you're doing product enhancements, you might do some feature building, but you know exactly what you build. And that's the moment when you can also say, okay, let's, it's fine right now to have this. And also, of course, the story needs to be clear because the channel partner will always be worse in explaining the story than you yourself. So you need to be extremely good on your own in order to have the channel partner be at least good or decent at it. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, make sure that your product and value proposition is simple enough that any you know, sales rep for your partner company can spit out a messaging that uh, appropriately gives credit to what you've built. Did you end up having to change anything about your product to facilitate you know these partnerships working appropriately along those lines? We did not. Uh, and I, I would probably discourage most companies of doing that. Mm -hmm. Because if you need to adjust your product because of the sales pitch or because of the partner, I think that would be a very long shot. And, and I can't imagine a scenario where that would make sense. And what about other investments that you had to make? You know, I think another trope that people underappreciate is just how, how much you do need to invest in these partnerships to keep them alive and well. Can you talk through some of the team investments that you've made to be able to support your partnerships well and how that's evolved over time? Absolutely. It's a very, very important point. So I think when you do these partnerships, first of all, you really think, of course, what is the value in there for the partner? Because otherwise you, you can sign up 50 channel partners, but you don't get any juice out of them unless there's a clear incentive for them. And I am not only talking about them as the institution, but also them as their sales reps. Super, super important. So put yourself into the shoes of the individual sales rep. 
why should they mention cedar why should they help cedar and not only their their primary business so that's super super important um, i think because otherwise it, it won't work and then you already mentioned that a bit which is literally nurturing these um, these relationships if you just sign the agreement and then hope that they sell your product there's literally no chance this is ever going to happen it's the same mistake where some people think yeah in a sales team just have the right incentives and all of a sudden it sells on its own it's not going to happen it's real management and relationship building so having a channel partner um, being very close to them and why is that important because everything of course evolves so for example your product evolves your sales pitch evolves how do how are you mentioning product market fit to them uh, what is the value proposition of your product all of those things they change over time and you need to train them constantly on what you want them to focus on and then of course it, it also is which segment of the market do you want them to target and then last but not least just literally the relationship building you always need to be on top of mind that's the important piece do you actually staff like a partner management team that has a dedicated team per partner are you actually putting your sales reps alongside the sales reps of the partner in the field? What are some of the tactical people level things that you guys have done that have been successful? Yes, uh, we have two of our colleagues who are in business development. That means basically that they are responsible for getting these new channel partners and having the overall relationship with them. That means the corporate relationship with them. And from there, from this umbrella agreement, when it gets to a deal level, then there's the relationship between our sales rep and either their sales rep or their business development rep. So it's basically, I think, a two-way relationship. The first is the corporate agreement, which is a dedicated team of two people at Cedar, our business development team. And then when it goes down literally to an account level, then it is our sales reps together with their sales reps. Okay, so you have sort of a dyad structure internally to support that. What about post-sale? How do you manage the post-sale implementation process and you know just general customer success if the deal was sold through these partnerships? Yes. Uh, so usually the partnership completely ends after the sales process. We are 100% responsible for implementation for post-sales as well. Uh, it is just way too high touch, I think, our product. Because in healthcare technology, I think in general, these, these implementations are extremely painful and yeah, the quality is maybe mediocre at best. So having a really good process there and having really good team and, and just over-investing in it is part of the wow effect that really delights the customers. So I don't think we really would want to give that out of our hands. And it also leaves the door open for you to do cross-selling and upselling if needed without complications around sort of who gets credit for that, it seems like. Exactly. That doesn't mean that, that we don't rely, for example, on consultants or so on that. So sometimes we rely on some consultants who understand these EHR systems extremely well, but it's not really a channel partnership. So let's talk about things that have gone wrong. Are there examples of partnerships or things that happened in one of your partnerships that you can share that went sideways or just didn't you know, kind of play out as expected? And what were some of the learnings from that? Yes, a lot of them. <laughs> so, so I think we, we have had probably every single aspect that could go wrong. So we had the typical aspect that went wrong, excited about the partnership, great, toasting glass of champagne, we are the best buddies right now, and nothing ever happened. No introduction mm. happened and just went literally silent. 
Second thing that we happen, completely mess up on accountability of a certain deal. So partner thinks they introduced us to a client, they're eligible for a, a certain cut uh, or revenue share. And we strongly believe no, because we got it through a different channel partner or on our own. We had partner where we were not 100% aligned on just the quality of, of their brand and of their relationship with the customer. So we didn't feel comfortable that they even mentioned our name. We had that in the past as well. It's super important. So something like Cedar is a premium brand. We are definitely extremely careful with who can, who can mention us and who not. And that is also very important for us. So we had those things um, as well already. What we never really had, and, and, and I think that, 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 that is one thing that is the biggest fear for people doing these partnerships, but almost never happens, is that if they sell too much the channel partner, do the unit economics still work? It's usually fine in software. You don't have a problem with that. So usually the, the worst of these things besides the reputational is, okay, you just waste a lot of time and energy and don't get any yield. That's, I think, 80% of the failures. That's super comprehensive. Uh, for each of those instances, can you talk through kind of like what, what did you do? So in the case where the partner didn't yield anything, did you immediately sever the partnership or was there other recourse that you took there? No, I mean, you can, I mean, it depends also, of course, on what is the incentive. Is the, if the incentive is a revenue share deal, sometimes these things just literally go for a year and nobody does anything because there's always the hope whenever you have time, which you never have, <laughs> but then you, then you can invest in the partnership and really it yields something. But of course, you, at some point you need to make the, the decision, do you want to invest or do you want to divest? Sometimes it makes even sense just to have an artificial deadline where you say you have a 12 month contract or 24 month contract, and then you, it, by default, it will expire and you can extend it. So the default is it will expire and those zombie partnerships, I would call them, they usually then, then die, which is totally fine, right? It might be the right decision to cancel them. Sometimes, of course, it is literally that, that you forget about them. I mean, startup life is crazy, right? You just forget about them. And sometimes they are structural things that you figure out while working together that there actually no alignment between the two companies. And in those cases, hey, it might be to totally fine and you stay friends and, uh, and terminate the partnership. On the second example you gave where there are challenges giving credit you know, for certain deals, how, how have you addressed that? We've heard of you know, some companies doing sort of like a whitelist approach where they say, you know, here are the only opportunities that we would consider fair game for us to pursue together. Is that something that you've tried or do you have other tips for how to mitigate that risk? Um, usually in enterprise, I think named account makes sense. So you mm -hmm. call it a whitelist, however you want to call it. You just give a certain set of accounts and say they are right now on your list. Super important to have that time bound in two ways. The first time boundness is how long do you have to get us, for example, the introduction? And then the second time boundness is when do they need to close by? So let's, let's tell you an example. Julie, you right now are my um, channel partner. I give you a list of 10 different accounts. I would tell you, Julie, you will need to introduce me to those clients within the next, let's call it 120 days. And then on top of that, after the introduction, we have 12 months to close that account together. If it closes after 12 months, then there's no partnership anymore. And why is this so important? Because then you help me right now 
shepherding me the process, navigate the organization, be the coach to really help that. And mm -hmm. I don't want you to come right now in two years when the deal completely died, new executives, uh, uh, executives are at the system, and then I do the sale on my own or through a different channel partner, comes right now um, to a business agreement, and then you say, I want actually my cut. That doesn't mm -hmm. work. So time-boundness is super important besides this, this whitelist. Is there anything else, Roy, that we didn't cover that you think folks should know about or even advice that you would give, you know, to founders who are pursuing similar distribution strategies? Yes, happy to do that. So I think the most important thing is, unless the founder is involved in these channel partnerships, it won't happen. And, and it doesn't mean at all that the business development team that you hire are super talented. They're super talented and they might be even better than the founder. And definitely at Cedar, they're more talented than I am in literally the business development. But when it comes to these high-level partnerships, you need to have CEO-to-CEO relationships. And that's usually the only way on getting the entire organization moving. So I think trying to outsource that to somebody from business development will probably not work. Having a dedicated team that will do that, and it really needs to be dedicated because you never have time. Nobody has, ever has time in a startup. So it needs to be a dedicated team there needs to be very clear goals, what we want to do. And then the founder needs to be on top of it and, and really get engaged. Great. So top level commitment on both sides is super important. Yeah. That's great advice. It's also totally fine if sometimes the timing is not right. You just say, okay, for this year, channel partners is just not a priority for us. Let's just pause this. It's totally fine. No problem at all. Just literally wait for a year and then address it again. So don't force it. I think that's important. And, and do you actually treat channel partnership as an item, a line item on your corporate priority set? Is that kind of the level of visibility that you create for the team? Um, yes, we have that basically more of, uh, as a corporate goal. Sometimes we have basically, okay, we are hiring. Also, of course, you need to see what is your budget for it. If you hire right now, I don't know, two BD reps, for example, you need to, of course, know what is your return on them. You cannot just say, um, okay, there's no target for you as a, as a corporation to make these partnerships. As a corporation, you need to have targets against that. And we usually use OKRs for that. That's actually super helpful. Not necessarily only on the closings, but of course, scouting these these uh, channel partners, having the conversations. Yes, it's like a sales funnel to, to source them. Thank you so much, Florian, for these insights. I mean, Cedar has been representative of what great looks like along so many different dimensions. And I think the perspectives that you shared here will be viewed as such by uh, all the founders out there who are looking to execute on strong channel partnership strategies. So really appreciate your insights today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioweetsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.